The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman, Editor-in-Chief of Provoke Media, and I'm very happy to be joined today by someone I've known for a very long time in this business, Mr. Andrew Block. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. It's great to see you. So I've known you, Andrew, for quite a while, I think more than 15 years, maybe, at this point. Yeah, um, pushing 20. Yeah, po- quite, possi- quite possibly, despite the fact that you're only 35 years old. Exactly. Um, which is quite impressive. But <laughs> you have kind of got a new lease of life, I believe. You you were obviously at Frank for such a long time. You were, in many ways, synonymous with Frank. Um, but tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I I think actually describing it as a new lease of life is pretty accurate. So, I mean, as you know, I co-founded Frank and achieved great things um, personally, professionally. A few years ago, it was, I'm trying to think, sort of May, roughly three years ago. Um, just had a bit of an itch, something that I felt I just wanted a bit of a change of, I won't say that I was bored. I don't think you can ever be bored running an agency. Anyone who runs an agency knows it's relentless, um, rewarding, frustrating, brilliant, terrible, all at the same time. Um, But I just felt like something different. So um, short version of the story is I stepped back. I'm still involved with with the agency. I'm still a shareholder in it, still a non-executive director. But I've effectively freed up my day-to-day time to go off and explore other avenues. I didn't particularly have a plan in mind. Um, didn't know about this thing called COVID, which um, emerged about three weeks after making a decision that I'd sat on for a couple of years, oh, wow. which was potentially terrible timing, but actually I think worked out mm-hmm. to be brilliant timing. And it's been you know, a ride for every agency that has gone through that period. Um, and now, I it's quite hard to describe what I do but it's effectively split into a few different areas so um, I'm doing a lot in the M&A space Um, I'm a partner at a business called PCB Partners Mm -hmm. working on both the buy side and the sell side so on the buy side working with most of the major holding groups mid-tier holding groups private equity companies to help them make acquisitions and then on the sell side helping sell agencies to the same people largely. Um, I'm working for the AAR um, as a consultant. I started off um, looking after the PR side of their business, mm-hmm. fairly obviously, um, but that has um, expanded really off the back of a, an explosion of briefs in social, digital, mm-hmm. content, influencer, um, which is really, really rewarding. And mm-hmm. I love sitting on the other side of the table and advising clients on how to build their marketing ecosystems. Um, I sit on various different boards, um, some with the sort of in the marketing space, people like Marketeers, where we're sat today. They generously let us use their room, their studio. Um, Businesses that are involved in PR, people like Propel, which is a 
media measurement, um, as well as things completely unrelated to the world of PR. So an, an HR um, recruitment and assessment platform, a soft drinks company called Dawson's, all different sorts of people. Um, I'm continuing my work with Lord Sugar, which has been a relationship that goes back sort of since the very early days of Frank, mm. all his various businesses, The Apprentice, Apprentice Winners. Mm -hmm. And then in my spare time, I sort of made a pledge, I guess, to myself, because I don't have anyone to answer to anymore, that I would try and spend 20% of my time giving back. And I've sort of become um, very involved with the Prince's Trust, sitting on their business launch panel, helping them figure out what business plans are viable to invest in. So it's a bit like being on Dragon's Den, just being a bit nicer. Um, a business called Big Community Records, um, which was set up by the COO of Google, Craig Fenton. I know you're into your hip hop. So we do have one. It's actually the world's first grok artist, which is a mix of grime and rock. But the principle of the record label is to help take underprivileged, mainly black talent from poor areas and use technical knowledge and marketing skills to help them beat the music industry yeah. monopoly and breakthrough. Yeah. Um, and then helping people like the School of Communication Arts, which is the most awarded ad school in the world, working with them as a mentor and a friend to the school. The School of Marketing, again, sort of, um, I'm a Generation Z or Z mentor, yeah. helping young people get into the industry. Um, I did a big project for the last couple of years, um, working with Sir Lloyd Dorfman um, to build a COVID memorial at St Paul's Cathedral, which is now stage one is complete. So it's one of the first things to ever be built within St Paul's. And it's a place where anyone who sadly lost someone during COVID can go and reflect, doesn't matter what faith belief system you have. It's, it's a quiet and safe area of reflection. And we're, we raised... I think 2.6 million to build that and we're now sort of going through the next stage of expanding that and it's digital as well as physical mm -hmm. um, and various other things I mean there hasn't really been a quiet moment I don't play golf but if I did I wouldn't have had any time to play it yeah. um, but I, I genuinely when you say sort of a new lease of life it has been a new lease of life for me I'm having the time of my life. That's great to hear I mean that's quite a portfolio you've got um uh, you know, and the, the record label sounds very cool. So well done to you for that. I, I guess we'll focus on a couple of those. PCB, yeah. where you're doing M&A on agencies. But but first we can talk about AAR. Sure. You're not quite po poacher turned gamekeeper, but I guess you're closer to the other side, some sort of referee slash umpire. <laughs> um, do you miss agency life at all? No. Mm. I mean... Is the, is the very short answer. I thought I would. I, I thought I would really struggle. I mean, I, I remember going back, you know, to the days when we started Frank and I was at Ketchum before that. And as excited as I was about Frank and starting something new and having a, you know, building a business, it took me a long time to sort of separate myself from Ketchum. I was so fond of the agency and the people and the clients. And I used to follow, you know, all my old clients and wow. almost obsessively. And I think I'm not sure why with Frank, it still feels like my baby. Maybe it's yeah. partly because, of you know, I still have a stake and an interest in it. But I've somehow, I haven't missed the actual sort of agency life mm. part of it. Maybe it ground me down a little bit. 
I like working on my own and I'm not sort of solo so I don't have staff but I'm working with people all day long so I never feel lonely and I think one of my biggest frustrations throughout my career actually was you know as you get better at doing your job you move into management roles and you end up doing less of the bit you're good at and more the HR and the emotional support and the dealing with crap basically mm. and not actually doing the work and now I'm purely focused on doing what I love doing what I'm good at mm. and I don't miss that bit of agency life sometimes I walk into agencies and like, wow this is great love the culture but you kind of know when you watch agency videos when you follow them on social media when you go into the office you're sort of seeing their I don't know their their movie trailer the you're not yeah, seeing the behind the scenes yeah. video of all the crap that yeah we're very conscious of that because we often get the best yeah you know when 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 we watch these things so at AAR you're helping primarily I think helping clients when they want to select an agency is that, yes. is that about right? I mean, it's primarily that, but it actually goes, it's not just the mm -hmm. pitch process. Yeah. I think, as you know, as listeners will know, you know, the world of marketing has become more and more complex and clients are trying to figure out their ecosystems mm -hmm. and how to sort of, I don't know, maximize their creative capital and get the best out of their agencies, figure out who are the right ones to do the right jobs. So often there's a big piece of work that happens before you get to a pitch stage. Mm -hmm. And then it's, yeah, helping them run an effective pitch process and get the best agencies in place. So it's nice. It's, you know, we working within an agency world, you build up kind of like an encyclopedic knowledge of other agencies, what they work on, what their culture's like. And I always assumed clients would have that same level of knowledge and they don't. And if you ask a client, why not? Such useful information. They're not interested. You know, they're not <laughs> reading the media that we're reading. They're not following it. They're not obsessive about it. And, you know, most of the time clients, you know, they might be able to name two or three agencies who are likely to be yeah. the big, big agencies, but they don't really know anything about wow. them. Because I sometimes think, you know, why, do, why doesn't a client just sort of Google who are the best PR agencies? And yeah. the reason is you can't trust you can't. that advice. And it's it's often the sort of nuances mm -hmm. that they can't pick up on. And that's why they rely on people like AAR, but it's mm -hmm. also about running an effective process. It's about doing the right due diligence yeah. and having a comfort factor. But yeah, all these years of mm -hmm. previously useless knowledge, I'm now being paid <laughs> for that. And I love it. I always loved pitching. It was always my favorite bit of the job. And I always thought I was quite good at it. I probably am quite good at it, but yeah. I, learned so much seeing it from the other side of right. the table things that are so obvious when you sit on the other side of the table that's interesting let's talk about that because so first of all um you know we're hearing a lot about the market at the moment not yeah. just in the uk but everywhere it seems quite tough at the moment and part of that um from what we can see um are things like payment terms from clients which seem to have been i think this is a, a gripe we hear a lot from agencies right. this year We've even heard about more ghosting than usual and even, you know, clients not paying bills, that kind of stuff, leaving agencies in peril. Are you seeing a lot of this in the market or do you think it's it's kind of as it ever was? I'm seeing some of it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's hugely dissimilar to anything that's ever happened. But, you know, we're in a cyclical mm -hmm. industry, cyclical economy. You know, I've ridden through ups and downs. 
I think when the market is like it is at the moment, where there's big macroeconomic concerns, worries about inflation, cost of living, wars in China, in Ukraine, sorry, mm -hmm. Russia, um, you know, that causes instability. Um, you, there's always been good agencies, bad agencies, good clients, bad clients. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one of the things from my time at Frank, you know, we were always very, very tough on things like payment terms. And mm -hmm. we'd always insist on being paid in advance. And if a client oh, wow. wouldn't pay us in advance, we wouldn't take on the business. Um, and I've sort of kept that through my consulting career. It's just like ingrained into me to do it. And some people say to me, well, how can you say that? You Lots know, of agencies don't do that. Though. Most agencies Most don't do it. Why and not? I, Because I think they're scared. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I've observed through AAR is the ad industry, the performance marketing industry, a lot more confident, mm -hmm. a lot more assertive than the PR. I think there's like, like this sort of inferiority amongst a lot of the PR community and people are scared. Mm -hmm. um, but I always say to to my clients when I invite advise consultants, you know, don't put yourself in the position where you're exposing yourself to risk payment in advance. And if they have a problem with that, they're probably not going to be a great client. And it's better to find that out yeah. before you've done three months work than, than after. Um, you know, big corporations, often the bigger the corporation, the worse the payment terms are. Yeah. But you have to be bold and stick up for yourself yeah one of the i was in can I, um, I can't remember who it was i was watching a panel where someone said we just cannot anymore deal with clients who treat us like a bank mm. um, and it just does seem to be kind of a an issue i guess at the moment yeah um, I, I don't know if it's any worse mm. than it's always been it's in, it's interesting i mean it's i mean one of the advantages of working with the aar that i now see is we help put clients in their place and explain right. to them what's yeah. reasonable and what's not. And often they don't understand yeah. that they're doing anything wrong. And I think, you know, the other thing that I've observed is, you know, just the basic principles of responding to a pitch, giving feedback, appointing someone yeah. takes a lot longer than I ever thought when I understand the internal process of a client. Mm -hmm. One of my roles you know, within the AAR is to keep the agencies in the loop, to manage their expectations, to feed back. But sometimes with all good intentions, you know, you run a pitch and then the key decision makers, one of them's on holiday or yeah, they can't. Sure. And it just takes time. And also there's normally another stage after the pitch, which mm -hmm. you're oblivious to if you're an unsuccessful agency, which mm -hmm. is about discussing the commercial terms or mm -hmm. having a second meeting to better assess the chemistry of a team or and sometimes there's two agencies in that process, mm. but the other two agencies or however many that are unsuccessful are just in the dark yeah, waiting. And sometimes you just got to be a bit honest with agencies and manage yeah. those expectations. But clients, um, you know, there's good and bad clients and sometimes there is bad behavior. And I've always said, you know, when you're involved in a pitch process, it's the lifeblood of any agency and it's an incredible process when it's run fairly efficiently even if you lose as long as you know you've lost fair and square yeah. part of the game you know we we can't win everything yeah but when you go through a process and you invest so much time effort energy money resource and the end result is unfair for whatever reason that's a shitty feeling i mean yeah. it really is so i feel like i'm a guardian of agencies right. and 
I want every process I run that even if someone loses, they kind of lose with a smile on their face. Sure. So I will always make sure I give really, really in-depth feedback, communicate a process, because I know it's nothing worse than that. Yeah, you came a close second. It's like the shittiest feedback you can ever give to an agency. And it's never true. I mean, there's always a, yeah. I mean, they might have come a close second, but there's a reason why. And you have to yeah. tell them what that reason is. And agencies generally appreciate that. Everyone knows you go into a pitch and you've, if it's a fair process, you've generally got, you know, a 25% chance or 30% yeah. chance of winning. Um, so if you lose, you lose, but make sure that you lost fairly. Sure. What was your biggest gripe with um, pitching when you were agency side? If there was one that stood out above? I think, else? yeah, I mean, I there probably the, you know, the worst response to a pitch is when you don't ever hear okay so the, the ghosting the ghosting or yeah. when a client sort of you there was quite a lot of you'd pitch for something and then it'd be like actually we've decided we're not going to proceed with yes. this or i now need to get approval from yeah. the md and that's terrible and it's just like it's fine if they tell you up front mm. that this is the process but when it's not communicated mm. you know um graham good kind the, the other founder of frank you know, he always used to say to me, I, I, I'd do a lot of the pitching and I'd say, oh, we've just won, blah. And he went, you haven't won it until the money's in the bank. And like, I used to think like, you miserable gits, like I'm on, I'm on a high, like we've just, just won a pitch. pitch. But it is, he's a hundred percent right. And it's the amount of business we won in inverted commas that never actually materialized into fee paying business. You know, it happens to every agency, but he's so, you know, it's not a win until... Is that something you have to deal with at AAR? Do you have clients that... that... No, because I think, you know, one of the advantages of if you're an agency and a pitch is being run by AAR, you kind of know the client's serious. Yeah. They're paying AAR to run a process. Yeah. But also, it is my job to manage a client. And, you know, I think a pitch process has to be run really well. And it has to be proportionate to the size of the prize at the end. Mm -hmm. Can't be one size fits all. You have to leave the right length of time for an aid. You have to invest in an aid. You know, ultimately, you're looking for a partner, not a supplier. So that requires an investment from a client. And I don't think clients realize they're doing anything wrong by not investing the time. They're busy. They can't be bothered. They don't think it's important. But that's part of my role is to make sure they get the best you know you get out what you put in so i want to make sure that they give the agencies the best chance of success and they have the and then once they're sort of in that decision making process and the appointment process it's our job to help them make the commercial decisions it's not it's not our job to make the decision ultimately it's for them to decide but we'll make sure that they're going through the right processes to ensure the agency is the right agency and then the commercials work and like you say yeah. things like payment terms and stuff sometimes you have to educate a client so it's totally unreasonable to yeah. expect 90 day you know you're not you know tesco's mm -hmm. buying sausages off a farm you're buying an agency they've got a business they pay their staff monthly they can't operate mm -hmm. you can't expect them to lay out huge sums of money for stuff without paying them up front or you know all of these kind of things sometimes clients even the procurement departments of pretty big clients still think in terms of buying product rather than service. And so that, you know, that's all the sort of things that come yeah. with the role. And now that you're on, I suppose, that kind of the fence, that side of the fence, so to speak, 
What are the things that perhaps you wish you'd known when you were agency side? It's, I mean, there's, I think when you're agency side, you're very focused on a pitch process. Mm -hmm. um, and you always know that there's different factors. So you know that it's not just about the strategy or the creative. And mm -hmm. I think one of the frustrating things when you are agency side is you're, you'll win one pitch and the client will say, oh, you're the most creative agency. We loved you. And then the next pitch you go into, the agency will say, oh, you're not really creative enough. Or they'll say there wasn't enough strategy. Then the next client says, oh, there's too much strategy. And you can never really, you can only be yourself. And I'll always say to every agency, just play to your strengths. You can't, you know, you mm. can't be anything else. I think the thing that I've learned is so much of the process is outside of the actual pitch. Mm -hmm. So the importance of chemistry, the importance of building a relationship. And then once you've done a pitch, I think, it's extremely natural for an agency to like, you just slump and think, thank God that's finished. Yeah. Now we wait. Actually, that is the most critical right. time when okay. a client is, you know, still making up their mind and they're a bit on the fence. And so what should an agency be doing then? I think you've got to listen to the feedback in the room of a mm -hmm. pitch, pick up on things that a client might not be convinced on okay. or things potentially that you could build on mm -hmm. and then keep that momentum going the enthusiasm going and then you know most pitches there is a second stage right. it, it's not as it's not necessarily planned up front but it's most of the pitches i've been involved in there will be an element of indecision there, there might be a front runner but they're still they might want to they're going to want to go back and check something or sense check or mm -hmm. meet the team or whatever it might be sometimes when you've just finished a big pitch process and the client sort of phones you up and they're like, look, we really like you. We, you know, you're down to the last two, but we just want to see something. And then you're like, oh, really can't be asked. We've like used all our energy. It's it's like a football team yeah, going yeah. into extra the, time, the, and the you've adrenaline got, is so and you're a bit like, oh my god, we've got to do more work. Mm. That is the point where you, you know, yeah. really go you for really it. Should, you know, yeah. you're down to the last yeah. one or two. They're serious their sense checking certain things and you know i always found that stage really hard because i'd sort of like do you know what i don't even care if we lose it i've done yeah. that and that's normal i think i don't think i was abnormal no. but everything into, and that stage is so important and the commercials are important i think as mm -hmm. pr agencies you know you you worry about the strategy the creative what the powerpoint looks like and then 10 minutes before the client's about to walk through the door you're like okay i reckon that costs that that costs that i reckon we should charge that not always, sometimes a little bit more than that, but sure. actually seeing a sort of forensically detailed budget says that an agency is good at planning, that has really thought through stuff. And, you know, clients don't necessarily buy the cheapest. They're happy to pay for mm. the right, but they want to see that campaigns are thought through, that there aren't going to be surprises. Yeah, I definitely never used to pay enough attention to that right. side of it. I used to feel like we will just nail them by getting the best creative idea and then everything else will fall into place. Mm. Sometimes it does, but that sort of commercial side of it, mm -hmm. really important, especially now when you're dealing with campaigns that aren't just sort of, I don't know, just to simplify it, they're not just media relations. Yeah. So there's content production, there's social media strategy, there's influencer liaison and hiring and all these different elements which make it quite complicated because some of it is 
third party costs, some of it is fee. It's really important to see how an agency sort of separates that out and mm -hmm. how they charge. So if they have in-house content teams, production teams, editing suites, you know, is that part of the fee? Is it something they're charging back to the client as a third party cost? Yeah. It's much more nuanced and clients want to understand that, you know, however big their budgets are, they want to see how it's being spent. They want to see the allocation of a team. The other thing that I think is so important in a pitch is for a client to visualize who their team is. Right. Um, well, we hear that a lot. Right? And you know, is it's important, but you know, it's important. But I mean, actually, one of the most effective things I've ever seen in a pitch, and this sounds so stupid because it's so simple, but went to a pitch a couple of months ago and the agency just handed out a postcard at the beginning and on that postcard was each of the team members in the room with their role and what they do on the account mm. and because when you go into a pitch and you know you say hi I'm Andrew hi I'm Fred hi I'm John hi I'm it goes in one ear out the other or you write it on the pad and then you can't remember was that one Andrew or was that one John or yeah. just having a little postcard so you can just yeah. look up and think ah you know here's the one that's in charge of creative or she's the one that's the content and that's actually the team that will service the exactly account, because that's often a great people by people i mean yeah. that is what you're buying and that is the key key differentiator you know when i run a pitch generally i'm seeing three or four brilliant proposals the bit that differentiates it sometimes yeah you get a killer idea that just you just think oh you've got to do that but, but most of the time it's the people and you yeah. and it's the depth in squad and it's that yeah. hard challenge of you know i know this as an agency founder you think you're the best person in the room you probably are the best person in the room mm -hmm. and you want to do everything within your power to bring that business in so mm. you talk a lot yeah actually that's not a positive thing you know like because a client is realistic they might think this guy's a genius but they're also thinking Oh, Maybe not in my case, actually, but they're also thinking, you know, realistically, I'm going to get a couple of percent of his time. Yeah, They're more sure. interested in the account director, the account manager, that they know that's the one who, when they sort of pick up the phone, is going to answer and be there for them. Mm -hmm. You don't, people just, it's so obvious, all this stuff, but it's when you sit in agency land, you just don't necessarily think about it, mm -hmm. even though people tell you it mm -hmm. all the time. And that's why now I think if I was pitching, I would be a much better pitcher than I was. Yeah. I'd like to think so. And you were pretty good. I, I, I was pretty good. But, you know, there's always room for improvement. Sure. I mean, I wasn't good at everything, but that was that was my job really within the agency was to bring in new business and grow right. grow the agency. So. Is, is pitching the best way, do you think, for a company, a client to identify the agency they're going to work with? Um, yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean a traditional full-blown mm. pitch and like I said earlier it's it's all about putting a process in that is relative to the size of the prize at the end but also what you're trying to get out of a process so there's lots of there's a few things that we've sort of started to introduce at AAR um, things like the rapid response pitch mm. which is designed normally where it's a creative task um not you know not massively strategic around an event or a calendar hook but it's a chance to a see how agencies think on their feet but also to observe them throughout the process so we started it during covid and it was on zoom and a client you know would brief the team and then they'd see their thought process they'd literally sort of pop in and out of zoom rooms as they were preparing and thinking and 
you're not expecting the agency to come up with a perfect idea by the end of the session, but you'll be able to see if they're on your wavelength, if they're the type of people mm. that are thinking in the right direction that you could work with. So we we do that kind of stuff. We've introduced live responses within pitches because mm -hmm. I think especially in the world of social and content, you want agencies that can think on their feet creatively, strategically, intelligently. So I'm doing a pitch on Thursday, actually, where there's a live element. The, the agencies don't know what they're going to be asked to do. Um, and then, but the purpose of it mm, is not necessary. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. And it's, I mean, I would have loved it. Mm. Did you see much of that? when you? No, 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 I would have loved to have done that because mm. I, you know, I pride myself on thinking on my feet, but I don't, so that we've been doing that. And that's um, actually, that's kind of like bringing, you know, the real world into the pitch exactly isn't it? Well, that's reality and, yeah. and it's not necessarily what they come up with it's also just seeing how they're on social especially part of it is you know not jumping onto every single trend that's yeah. happening and realizing what could be the wrong sort of territory for a brand to be involved in as well as the right so you're not just looking for the end creative but you're looking for that thought process which leads them to the right creative or, or sort of taking away the wrong bit so we've doing stuff like that we've also started introducing things like agency safaris so sometimes you know i think one of the things that's going on in the world is marketing world is every agency says they can do everything mm -hmm. and then they can but it doesn't necessarily mean they're the best mm -hmm. placed to do it and clients don't know whether they've got too many agencies not enough agencies should they have a specialist influencer agency or should the pr agency be doing it or mm -hmm. should the media agency be doing it, or the ad agency should we be using a traditional, in inverted commas, ad agency, or should we be using a content production agency? So Safari is a sort of bit like a shopping excursion for clients to look around at the different types of agencies that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, and the agencies meet them because it's a good opportunity okay. for them to get in front of the client, but they're not necessarily going to get a brief at right. the end of it. And they know that. Yeah. But what it does is it helps a client figure out, okay, we like that type of agency and what they provide we didn't particularly like the agency themselves and then that we can go off and sort of create a universe of the right types of agencies in that set so we do that kind of stuff but I think you know look sometimes when I was agency side we would get non-competitive briefs without a pitch yeah it's a complete blessing I mean as an agency you can't believe your luck but if I'm being completely honest there's also an element of laziness you know if you're not competitively pitching are you sure. really really pushing yeah. yourself to come up with the best plan and strategy and creative mm. or whatever it might be okay. so i do think some element of competitive tension mm -hmm. brings out the best in agencies but yeah because i meet a lot of agencies now who are like i wouldn't say a lot but enough who say oh we don't pitch it's bullshit <laughs> like it really is i mean what i see in the ad world is they're much more selective mm -hmm. potentially because they put more investment into what they produce potentially because they've got more confidence mm -hmm. but you almost have to pitch the client to them for them to yeah. say they're much more mature in asking the right questions right i mean as it happens you know with aar you know i've asked all the questions so, you know i won't mm -hmm. let a client speak to agencies before i know the budget the timings mm -hmm. the breakdown um with ad agencies, you know, they they will ask for a huge level of detail before committing to go to a pitch, mm -hmm. um, which I really respect. Uh, the first time I saw it, I sort of thought, a bit arrogant. <laughs> You're in the service industry, you know, like, 
but actually <laughs> it's the client here. exactly and sometimes you can forget that when yeah. you're in these meetings but it's also smart and i do think sometimes yeah. in the pr industry without making a massive mm -hmm. sweeping generalization we can just be a bit subservient and we're people pleasers and mm. we just say yes and you've yeah. got to have confidence and you know half the time you waste on pitches you could completely avoid if you were stronger in your principles and you asked the right questions and you were prepared to walk away and mm. that was something I got better and better at doing throughout my career and it is always hard to walk away from something and you always say like it must have a good budget they it must be okay and like my gut feel says it's going to be all right but if they don't you know if a client won't invest in meeting you won't doesn't brief you effectively isn't giving you a budget isn't giving you timings however attractive that client is you're just wasting your time you yeah. really are but it's easier said than done and i know sure. that from experience a couple more things on pitches i wanted to run by you sure. um i heard of a, a client in america that just i think invited i think it was 30 agencies um so that, i think that was rfi uh, but then nine for the rfp so what, what, what's wow. your do you have like an ideal number in your head when you're doing these things and do you have to talk clients out of maybe expanding that yeah you do have to talk the clients mm. out of expanding it because i think clients in their mind they want to see as much as possible so they right. don't think they're doing anything wrong i mean in my mind the optimum number is three. Oh wow okay four if there is an incumbent okay that's to pitch yeah no, 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 fair enough. in the yeah. sort of i mean a standard process if there is such a thing as a standard process i will normally show a client 10 to 12 different agencies at a long list okay. stage at right. which point i haven't asked anything from the agency apart okay. from maybe check conflicts and that kind of stuff but there's no investment there's from no the investment. Agency. so i'm showing them 12 agencies maybe for chemistry stage they would meet anywhere between i don't know six and eight yeah and then when it gets to pitch three three or four but four if there's an incumbent sure. and you know i think the other thing is clients sometimes think they're doing the right thing by bringing an incumbent mm -hmm. into a pitch process i will always interrogate them are you actually gonna re-employ them because yeah. if you're not you know it's better to shoot them in the head than let them have a sort of slow painful death. yeah because it's you you often hear one of two things when you're the when, from from the incumbent agency which is we haven't got a hope of winning this and some and, and some quite smart agencies in that position will will resign mm. or will decline the repitch um or you hear from the other agencies pitching that uh, the incumbent's definitely gonna gonna retain and, you know look the thing is i mean my view is if if you're a client, especially if you're going through AAR, unless it's for a sort of procurement purposes and mm. you have to sort of tender every few years, that's an exception. But why are you going through this yeah. process? If you really have belief that your agency could step up and be the right agency for you, then do that outside of a pitch process. Like it's too late once you're... Um, but often clients do do it because they like their agencies they're just disappointed in their performance and mm. they think it's a bit of a kick up the backside and they're not entirely confident they'll be able to do it yeah. they want to yeah. give them a chance the biggest mistake i see from incumbent agencies going into pitches is they don't address the elephant in the room 
So they'll almost ignore the fact they're in a pitch process and talk about what they're going to do and how exciting it is and these big new ideas, but won't address or confront any of the reasons why they're faced with this situation. Yeah. Um, and that's a huge mistake. And I've seen lots of incumbents get knocked out of the process because they totally ignore the fact yeah. they were doing anything wrong in the first place. New client syndrome. That must be something you see a lot of where a new client comes in and and wants to pitch. I mean, that's not uncommon. Yeah, no, it? it's not uncommon. I think clients do want to make their, their mark. Mm. Um, but I see less of it mm -hmm. than I thought. Um, but certainly, I think there's less of it around than there used to be. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the, the main thing I see is clients trying to figure out their agency mix yeah. and work out if they've got the right agencies in the right seats and whether they need specialisms, whether they should consolidate. It's, it's almost mm. like two completely polar opposite trends happening at the same time so one is consolidating because they've suddenly got so many agencies it's just a mess and it doesn't work in an integrated way or the complete other end of the scale is okay we realize we need to up our game in content production or influencer yeah. so let's look for specialist agencies and they're both happening so at the same time so, so the pendulum is swinging both ways. yeah yeah it's, it's a strange one because it, yeah. it's you know, and there's no right or wrong no. answer. Well, the answer is get the right agencies for the right job in hand and don't overcomplicate it if you don't need to. But every client is different. They've all got different needs. Last question. Where do you stand on pitch theatre? Um, do you know, it's a funny one. It's I think when it goes well, it's brilliant. But we've all had disasters and like too many to... And too humiliating. Would you, would you want to share? <laughs> I mean, so many. I was a big fan of pitch theatre. Sometimes it went right. Sometimes it went horribly wrong. The first one that comes to my head is we were pitching for, um, I think it was for EA, for one of their war games. And we thought it'd be good pitch theatre to waterboard someone <laughs> in the pitch. Sorry. Um, I don't know why we thought that. Um, but yeah, that didn't go down very well Goodness me, um, yeah, I think you, there's like a UN convention on but that. sometimes it's brilliant I, there was one we did where I can't remember even what I think it was for, I can't believe it's not butter and I can't really remember that there's something can't even remember the relevance mm. to it but we had an actor in the pitch that the whole way through pretended to be part of the agency mm -hmm. and right at the end our sort of reveal was actually at it's not all it seems, you know, I'm an actor, I don't know anything about PR, da, 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 da. and the client thought it was so brilliant, like, I think that they appointed us without seeing any of the other agencies they were due to see for pitch, so sometimes yeah. it goes really well. I think it's important to be memorable, you've got to have substance, it, it mm. can't be gimmicky, you're never going to win it, but, you know, look, I've seen massive clients that have been super impressed that they've got a branded biscuit um, or a notepad or you know a logo in reception you know that really yeah sure. but ultimately you've got to have substance yeah. but you want to be memorable i mean at frank we always had this thing about having memorable boardrooms because we recognize people go into all these rooms yeah. and i remember your boardroom yeah frank. you've been in a few of them i think <laughs> um so we you know we had an ambulance a beach a bedroom walk, fairground waltzers fun fair because um, we wanted to be remembered um, and it is true when you go when you're a client and you're pitching you think you remember everything but the agencies all blend into one and sure. it was always our logic that if the only thing they remember are those were the guys that had the beach as their boardroom 
like at least they're sort of remembering us in that context and I think it was always quite good for us it was always a talking point always loosened up clients so we almost had a bit of theater yeah from the moment they stepped through the door um without the gimmicks but yeah I think theater where it's always good to be memorable always good to show yeah. effort there's a bigger question here I don't know because I really want to ask you about m a as well but just quickly do you think agencies are as clearly distinguished today as they were let's say 10 years ago or so distinguished in terms I. E. Of... are they are they memorable individually no 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 the thing i hear most often not i wouldn't say most often but one of the things i hear often from clients is they're all the same agencies yeah i mean I, whenever i consult agencies i will always say differentiate yourself mm. be known for something don't try and be everything to everyone yeah. and i do think you know one of the things you know in the pr world when you look at it there are certain agencies that you feel like you're always reading about. They're always winning. They're always doing something. They're always on social media. And those are the agencies where the tap from a new business perspective is continually dripping. Yeah. And you know what they stand for. You know what they're all about. Yeah. I mean, they're also self-selecting away clients. But that was always a big thing at Frank. You know, we felt yeah. that I think it was partly born out of the fact that I never wanted to pick up the phone and cold call anyone or, sure. you know, send an email I I wanted to build our profile to the level where people would know us. They'd know what we stood for and were all about. Yeah. And if that was for them, they would approach us. And you've almost half won a pitch if a client has come to you. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, agencies are very poor at differentiating themselves. Yeah. And, well, I think the holding groups, um, unfortunately, probably have, have, have to take some responsibility for that kind of flattening maybe the agency world maybe but i think also agencies it's just a tendency for them to say that they can sort of do everything and mm -hmm. especially in an aar capacity i get you know literally dozens of agencies a week saying you know we'd like to meet you and show you our credits da, 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 da. and i've learned to say to them tell me what send me your creds but tell me what's different what your different differentiation is mm -hmm. and I, that sounds like a real asshole thing to say yeah. But, you know, ultimately, if I get a consumer briefing, there's however many hundreds, thousands of agencies. I, I need to know more. I need to know what's their, you know, maybe it's not completely a USP or differentiating, but I need to know, you know, we're brilliant at this. We're yeah. really strong at that. But maybe it's because we come from a people pleasing industry that we just say, maybe. yeah, we can do everything. Whatever it is, let us know. And that's the wrong answer. Sure. So let's talk about your other role. Um, you're working on M&A, as you said, both buy side and sell side. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the biggest trend we've seen in the M&A space over the past decade is the influx of private equity money. It's interesting. If you look back, again, maybe to when we first met, there really wasn't hardly any in of, of private equity money in terms of actual private equity funds mm. investing in the PR industry. And now... Just yesterday, we saw Investcorp spending a hundred million yeah. on um, SEC Newgate. We saw KKR earlier this year buying so, into FGS at a, a one point four billion valuation. There's a lot of it going so what, on. At what's the going on? Why are all these private equity houses so interested in the public relations industry? I think. I mean, it's not just the public relations industry. Okay. I think they're interested in everything mm -hmm. that they can make money from. Mm -hmm. um, it's you know, look, private equity, as I've learned in the last few years, is 
extremely nuanced and the same as you know listeners to this podcast will have an understanding of the nuances between different marketing groups and agencies private equity is the same and you've got some who really do understand the space and the sector and you've got others who don't but they they all know how to make money and i think you know private equity has been prevalent because PR firms are profitable and marketing services firms are profitable. Um, but the last few years, the real um, hunger and pace was in the corporate side of things, mm -hmm. um, which it still is to a degree, healthcare, mm -hmm. um, but also other marketing services. So anything to do with data, yeah. um, digital transformation, and what's happened, certainly in the last six months or so, is yeah, if you imagine a private equity firm buys at X, mm -hmm. they then want to sell at Y. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, they need to buy at X at the right level. Mm -hmm. And any sort of businesses of scale um, in data, in digital transformation, in healthcare and corporate, are commanding too high a multiple for a private equity firm to get a return on investment right. and now what certainly what i'm seeing in the last few months is they're recognizing the fact that they can buy more traditional pr firms at a sensible multiple and and i don't mean like they're looking for a bargain or trying to yeah undercut. The PR firms undervalued they're not undervalued they're realistically valued right um so they can buy them a sensible multiple which means that they can put together a strategy to then exit mm -hmm. at something that's more exciting mm -hmm. to them so it's it's a very very busy mm -hmm. market and as an agency founder yourself one who's been through a sale and then an mbo um so you've seen kind of the ups and downs of that whole process how do you advise other founders if they are um perhaps in that kind of situation private equity is interested in investing um it can be quite fraught with with uh you know concern and it's it's stepping into the unknown there's a potential sale on the horizon what what is what kind of things are you asking them and telling them i think it's 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 all about figuring out what is right for a founder mm -hmm. um and what they want so some you know some founders would like to be part of a big trade operation where they can you know they might be working on bits of business that have a certain value but they can't quite get to the next tier or they might be operating successfully in the uk but they don't really know how to build the business out internationally and by being part of a trade organization and but you know that that could be um one of the big holding groups it could be like an accenture type management consultancy um that gives them what they want and they can see how you know they 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 can cross network clients and they like being part of that sort of structure other um founders are perhaps a little bit more unemployable in inverted commas you know they can't see themselves working for someone else mm -hmm. they want to retain their sort of role but have the financial support and the intelligence that comes from private equity firms to advise them on how to expand and how to grow in different areas um you know there's 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 all different types of founders and the first thing i have to do 
is figure out what their motivations are. And, you know, like I have my personal opinions. You know, we sold our business to a business that was called Anero, which mm-hmm. was marketing services group. They were based in Australia. And actually, the fact they're based in Australia was one of the prime attractions to us. So, you know, you literally couldn't get further away. And that was a good thing um, in terms of distance, in terms of time. But, you know, to be fair to them, they were it was an unbelievable relationship. And they always said, you know, the key to success is, you know, you're no longer the financial owners of this business, but we want you to be the, emo- it still feel emotionally like it's your business and we're going to leave you alone. And yeah, sure. If you cock up and, you know, things are going wrong, we'll be here for you. We'll help you. We'll support you. We'll give you a bollocking, whatever it might be. But generally, you know, we bought you because you're a great company. You know what you're doing and we're going to let you get on with that. And they were very true to their words. And I, you know, I literally, we used to walk in and it didn't feel any different to how it was the year before um and that for me was a big motivation actually private equity is similar Mm -hmm. to that you know they always no not always Mm -hmm. um like same with you know these things are nuanced and you have to kind of figure out what's what's the right fit some of them understand the marketing services industry pretty well and they can actually add quite a lot of value um because they've got experience from different firms and what works and what doesn't um others don't have a clue i mean we were as pcb partners which is the business that i advise for you know we you know i've got a client which is you know one of the biggest private equity companies in the world they do not understand marketing services at all mm-hmm. but i do and we do so we're building a group mm-hmm. for them and they don't need they they understand business they understand how to do a buy and build strategy they don't need to understand the intricacies of the business you know that's because they're they're looking for founders who are self-motivated they've got successful companies they've got strong management teams second tier management teams that are motivated to grow they incentivize them for that growth over that period and that they don't need to understand it the same as when they buy a chain of pizza restaurants they don't necessarily need to understand the restaurant industry the retail industry how to make pizzas they yeah. if they see a successful chain that has got the potential to grow you know but there's there's all ends of the scale sure. and you know there's also sort of you've got private equity and you've got the big guys with billions in funds you've got the slightly smaller ones and then you get down to almost sort of private family offices yeah. who are investing yeah. in sort of mm-hmm. small groups and you know that's an entirely different beast because the money is a little bit more personal mm-hmm. to them they're likely to be a bit more on your case a bit more involved which could be good for some so it's trying to find the right fit and i think you know i don't see selling a company you know as much different to running a pitch it's mm. it's a process and i think you know whilst i have you know only really got a few years of experience in being involved in M&A, I have done it once before and I've been there and seen it, worn the T-shirt, which gives me, I think, founder empathy and emotional intelligence, which yeah. is surprisingly, like, you know, lacking yeah. in a lot of the industry. And when the, the guy who founded PCB, when he first spoke to me about taking on the role, I said to him, I don't think I'm qualified enough. And he sort of said, look, I can find people that can work their way around excel spreadsheets and look great in a pinstripe suit you know 
any day of the week that you know these people are there they're great they're easy what is really hard to find is founders that understand the thought process that other founders are going through and it's a big deal selling your business it's you know emotionally draining i mean it Mm -hmm. took years off me the the fear i think when it comes to selling to private equity often is that obviously you're going to give up a measure of control you'll probably be giving up board seats you may be giving up a majority in the business um and you may start to see certain changes being made to the business in order to make it more profitable when the exit finally happens um how how valid a a concern is that i mean what you have to realize is that both the the business that's been acquired and the private equity firm that's acquiring their interests are aligned Mm -hmm. you know they're buying people and they know how to spot great people so you take you know the building we're sat in today mm-hmm. so marketers was a client of pcb yeah. we met i mean dozens of private equity firms um we ended up with well, they ended up um taking investment from a firm called waterland who are mm-hmm. have an incredible reputation really understand this industry have a proven track record they're one of the most successful PEs in the world um they saw in the founder power of, of marketers a businessman that was driven that was hungry that had a track record of years of years of successful operation had a strong management team but was hungry for to keep going you know this wasn't a guy that was going to sit on a beach and relax he mm. he had energy pace I'm not sure if he's listening. Well, he's sitting outside. He's sitting outside. I don't know if he's listening or not. But I, I, you know, I'd say he's still, he's still here. At he's smiling. So, so but I would say it to his face anyway. So, yeah. and you know, but what one of the things that is most rewarding for me, and Howard is, you know, a friend as well as a business contact, and that sometimes makes things harder because mm-hmm. you're invested in the right thing. But I think one of the things that is most rewarding for me is to see just the drive and passion you said I've got a new lease of life when we started Mm -hmm. this conversation I mean he's got a new lease of life and Mm -hmm. that's because he's got the support of Waterland he's now you know marked his you know just watch this space I mean it is flying and the acquisitions that will be made and the stuff that's coming and you know in terms of new services new geographies just the whole buzz around the business it's it's that's the bit that's rewarding for me because yeah look money is money and don't get me wrong Mm -hmm. there's plenty of people that take deals just for money but that doesn't always lead to happiness and and one thing i will say is we haven't actually seen that many horror stories in terms of private equity Um, and it makes me think they might even be better buyers than the holding groups and i'm sure that's not something you you, well, you'll want to comment on no it's subjective i mean yeah. it's, as i said it's you know it's what's right you know if i look at myself personally i could imagine myself doing a deal with private equity mm. i couldn't imagine myself being part of a traditional holding group it's, yeah you know but that's me you know and what's right for me is not necessarily right sure. for the net they're different buyers so it's the same as with a pitch you know you're not just buying on the quality of a creative idea you're buying on a full package of chemistry and all these different factors exactly the same when you're selling 
a company, but I think there are less horror stories. You know, generally the model of private equity is, you know, they take, you know, either an, a, the entire company or a majority stake or, yeah. or a minority stake, whatever it might be, but there's two bits mm. to it. And, you know, the first bit is when you get your cash sum and you mm. leave something on the table for the next stage. You know, that stage might not materialise, might not be as good as you want, might mm. take longer than you want. Um, in the same way that when you sell into trade and you have an earnout period, you know, often where that goes wrong is, you know, the earnout doesn't materialise and the founders sat there suddenly thinking, I'm never going to see the next bit. And all the same things that can go wrong can go wrong. All the things that can be brilliant and go right can go right. I think the rewards can be bigger mm. with private equity sometimes, but, you know, it's it's all about the deal that you do. Well, the direction is clear, I think, in the industry. Um, you know, we see very few deals from publicly owned companies these days. Some of the smaller ones, the Next15s and so on, but very few in terms of the big ones. It really is a, you know, a private equity world at the moment in terms yeah. of M&A. Well, I mean, it's probably because a lot of the big groups have They've got their PR firms in place. They don't yeah, need more. I mean, but when is uh, how many is enough? You know, Omnicom, for example, I don't know. It had I think it has ten agencies, but is that enough? Was five enough? <laughs> yeah, or is five too many? I mean, yeah. it's it's all about. I think you know what what the management consultancies realised was they wanted to get in at the beginning of a customer client journey mm. and take them the whole way through. So you end up with the ad agency the pr agency right. but actually you start off with data science with right. research intelligence yeah, that's the beginning digital transformation and then you work your way through the entire client journey and that was a model that you know tim breen created for accenture interactive mm. 10 15 years ago the 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 big holding groups have sort of recognized that and they followed that model. So they've been busy sort of building the earlier part of the chain, the, the right. data, the research, because yeah, sure. they already had the end part, but they were losing it okay. or under threat of losing it. So yeah. now most of these big holding groups have got that end-to-end -end offering um, and it's about strengthening it. So I think, you know, they are buying, but they're buying, I don't know, a technical ESG specialist or... Yeah. Uh, might be an entertainment PR specialist to put some sort of sparkle on the yeah. the group and raise the profile. So yeah. it's, but you know, how many do you need of anything? Right. I mean, they, yeah, they may not need more generalist PR firms. And and by the way, no shots at um, Omnicom. That was just no, not at all. I'd I mean, say the same. For yeah. Any of the holding groups, Andrew. I think we probably have to stop. We've been going for almost um, an hour now, and I feel like we could keep going. Um, it's been great talking to you. No, you too. Let's talk again soon because um yeah i really value your viewpoint and your insight Thanks. thank you very much thank you you've been listening to the provoke podcast brought to you by provoke media and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketers